the evening of June 2, 1919, Attorney General Mitchell Palmer decided to go to bed early. This is not the sort of decision upon which history typically turns. Most nights, Palmer would read for several hours in the first-floor library of his townhome on R Street in Washington, sitting in a cozy chair by a window overlooking the street in the front of his house. But that night, Palmer and his wife, Roberta, went upstairs to their bedroom in the back of the house about 11. By 11.15, Roberta was in bed, and Palmer was in his PJs, reading in a bedside chair. The night was quiet, so Palmer clearly heard a car stop in the street. Its door opened and closed. Then Palmer heard footsteps. This was not alarming. The street was full of houses. But then there was a thudding crash, as if something had hit his front door. This was followed immediately by a massive explosion. Palmer was hurled from his chair. Roberta flung out of bed. The noise had been deafening. The couple, remarkably unhurt, ran to the bedroom of their teenage daughter, Mary. She had been asleep in the room down the hall. They found her crying hysterically, but fine. Palmer left Roberta comforting Mary. He crept downstairs, uncertain what he would find. The stair rail was shattered. Broken glass was everywhere, and plaster dust filled the air. A stuffed elk's head that normally hung on the wall had been thrown to the floor, where it rested drunkenly among ripped parquet flooring. The front door had been blown in, and Palmer could see into the dark street beyond. What in God's name had just happened at the home of the Attorney General? This is the year that was, 1919. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast where we tell the story of history one year at a time. We are now deep into our look at the United States in 1919 and focus this week on the Red Scare. Many Americans are familiar with the Red Scare of the late 1940s and early 1950s, the one that involved the House Committee on Un-American Activities and Joseph McCarthy. But that was actually the second Red Scare. The first period of panic lasted from late 1918 through early 1920, and it has really surprising echoes of our own time. So let's return immediately to R Street on the night of June 2nd, because this was a transformational moment, a hinge on which turned everything that followed. Let's look at the events of that night from a different perspective, from that of an up-and-coming politician named Franklin Delano Roosevelt, then Assistant Secretary to the Navy. Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt had attended a dinner party that night. Four of the Roosevelt's five children were away visiting Franklin's mother. The fifth, 11-year-old James, was home and in bed. The cook had stayed to keep an eye on him. Just after 11 p.m., Franklin parked his car at a garage a few blocks from their house on R Street, just across the street from the home of the new attorney general. The couple began walking home through the pleasant summer evening. Then they heard the explosion rip through the night. Screams echoed down the streets, and the couple began to run as they realized whatever had happened had struck very close to home. The closer they got, the more the scene resembled something out of a war zone. Broken tree limbs and leaves covered the street and sidewalk, mixed with, and this is awful but can't be avoided, blood and flesh. 
The front of Palmer's home had taken the brunt of the explosion, but up and down the street, windows were shattered and balconies ripped away. Roosevelt shoved open his front door and took the stairs two at a time to get to James. Roosevelt found his son standing at the hall window looking down at the chaos. The future president swept him into a rib-crushing hug. I get the impression the Roosevelts weren't a particularly demonstrative family. That hug and his father's obvious panic concern stuck with James Roosevelt the rest of his life. What also stuck with James is that he had run barefoot across the floor covered with shards of glass and somehow not cut himself. A shaken but resolute Eleanor Roosevelt arrived on the scene seconds later and adopted a tone of calm normality. Whatever are you doing out of bed at this hour, James? she asked. While Eleanor got James in bed, Franklin went out to investigate. He found his neighbor Palmer picking through the wreckage of his first floor. The shaken attorney general reverted to the speech habits of his childhood. He had been raised a Quaker, a sect that used thee and thou in place of you. Roosevelt later told Eleanor that Palmer had been theeing and thouing all over the place. The bomb, because it had definitely been a bomb, had been a powerful one. And to the horror of everyone on the scene, among the wood and glass and bricks were human remains. Part of a human body, my source doesn't tell which part, and that's okay, smashed through the front window of the house next door to Palmer, which was then home to the envoy extraordinary and member plenipotentiary from Norway. It landed on the floor next to the baby's bed. Police soon arrived, cordoned off the area, and set up searchlights to begin hunting for evidence. They found bits and pieces of two guns, a cheap suitcase, an English to Italian dictionary, and a brown fedora. It was at first unclear exactly how many people had been killed in the blast. It appeared two left legs had been discovered, and as you know, most people only have the one. But as only one head was found, it was decided there had been one bomber. Police theorized the man had been dropped off by car and carried the bomb in the suitcase up to Palmer's house. However, he tripped on the steps. The suitcase flew out of his hands, hit the door, and exploded. The bomber died instantly. By the time the sun rose on our street, news was spreading across the country that not only had the home of the attorney general been bombed, so had homes in eight other cities. The bombs had been placed more or less simultaneously at the residence of the mayor of Cleveland, a federal judge in New York, a state legislator in Massachusetts, a silk manufacturer in Patterson, New Jersey, and four other locations in Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, and Boston. One other man had died, a night watchman in New York. Scattered on our street amidst the wreckage were about 50 copies of a leaflet, Titled Plain Words, it contained a lengthy rant about the ruling class. It concluded, quote, long live social revolution, down with tyranny, and was signed the Anarchist Fighters. In appearance and in wording, it was very similar to the flyer that had been posted around the north end of Boston a few days before the purity distilling tank had failed. The conclusion of many in law enforcement is that the bombings were the work of Italian anarchists, probably the Gallianists. 
the Gallianists, remember, were anarchist followers of Luigi Galliani, who preached violence against capitalists. The Gallianists were a small group, probably no more than 50 men, dedicated to violence. The Gallianists had grudges against all of the individuals targeted on June 2nd. The federal judge in New York, for example, had recently sentenced two Gallianists to prison. Galliani himself had been arrested in March and was due for deportation on June 24th by Palmer's Justice Department. This all seemed fairly straightforward, but that is not the explanation that most Americans came to accept. Most Americans, including Mitchell Palmer, believed that the bombings were part of a nationwide attempt by Bolsheviks to overthrow the United States government. To understand why so many people believed this, we need to go back a bit. We've discussed before how fear of subversion rose to record levels during the Great War, even before the United States formally entered the conflict. Many people feared that Germany was spreading dissent within the country and using German-Americans to spy on preparedness efforts and sabotage war production. These fears were not entirely groundless. Remember that Germany had tried to negotiate a secret deal with Mexico to enter the war in exchange for the entire southwestern United States. Nevertheless, German spies were never as active in the United States as Americans believed. As the war continued, radicals came under increasing pressure. We discussed last week how the government at all levels went after the Wobblies. The socialists were also targeted. Before the war, the Socialist Party of America had been considered leftist, but not dangerously so. Eugene V. Debs, who had led the party since 1901, ran for president five times, and in 1912, he won 6% of the popular vote. The party succeeded in electing two representatives to Congress, dozens of state legislators, and more than 100 mayors. However, fear of socialism soared after the Bolshevik takeover of Russia in the autumn of 1917. To combat its perceived enemies, Congress passed three laws. We've talked about them before, but let's go over them again. First was the Espionage Act of 1917. This was a law that made it illegal to utter or print any, quote, disloyal, profane, scurrilous, or abusive language about the form of government of the United States, unquote. This was, however, deemed inadequate to the task, and so the act was followed up with the Sedition Act of 1918, which outlawed any speech that could cause others to view the American government or its institutions in a negative light. Also passed was the Immigration Act of 1918, which allowed for the deportation of what were termed, quote, undesirable aliens. The Justice Department found these laws extremely useful in coming down on both the Wobblies and the Socialists. In June 1918, Eugene V. Debs gave a fairly typical speech denouncing capitalism. He was arrested two weeks later and indicted on 10 counts of violating the Espionage Act. At his trial, Debs admitted to saying everything he was charged with saying, but declared the criminalization of such statements a violation of the Bill of Rights, especially the right to free speech. He was convicted and sentenced to 10 years. It might seem that the end of the war would put American fears to rest. The Allies had won, the Germans were defeated, there was nothing left to worry about, right? 
Apparently not. The Kaiser might have been exiled, but the Bolsheviks still ruled in Russia. Lenin's government actively promoted world revolution. And you'll remember that several Bolshevik governments were briefly established in Europe in the winter of 1919. From the perspective of a century, it seems ludicrous that the United States would see Bolshevism as a threat. But the Russian Revolution had been an enormous shock to the entire world. It was reasonable to ask if it could happen there, could it happen here? But once that fear was planted, reason had very little to do with it. Many otherwise sensible Americans convinced themselves that communists were hiding behind every corner. Take, for example, Senator Lee S. Overman, a Democrat from North Carolina. Overman chaired a subcommittee of the Judiciary Committee responsible for investigating charges that the United States Brewers Association was plotting to exert pro-German influence on the press. He expanded his mission to look at pro-German activities in general, and when the war ended, he claimed to have definitive proof, which he did not produce, of collusion between the Germans and the Bolsheviks. This allowed Overman to keep his committee up and running and to shift its focus to suspected communist activity in the United States. Events of the winter provided Overman with what he considered clear evidence of this activity. First, the molasses tank collapsed in Boston. Then the unions of Seattle called a general strike. News emerging from Russia fueled the hysteria. For example, in mid-February, R.E. Simmons, a former Commerce Department representative, testified before the committee about the horrors of the Bolshevik state. He claimed members of the Red Army were organized into pickpocket gangs that individuals considered more intelligent than the Bolshevik leadership were systematically shot, and that women were being nationalized and distributed among the male populace. Now, the Bolsheviks were brutal practitioners of systematic terror, but none of the stories recounted by Simmons were true, and most were frankly absurd. Others tried to paint a more glowing, or at least more factual, picture of life in the new Russia, but Overman dismissed them all as Bolshevik propaganda. One interesting exchange occurred during the testimony of one witness named Raymond Robbins, a progressive economist who urged recognition of the Bolshevik regime and dismissed the fears of communist takeover in the United States. When asked about the danger presented by the Bolsheviks, Robbins said, quote, I have faith enough in our institutions to believe that we will throw that foreign culture, born out of a foreign despotism, back out of our land, not by treating it with the method of tyranny, not by a witch hunt, nor by hysteria, but by strong, intelligent action. Senator Overman replied, what do you mean by witch hunt? Robbins answered, I mean this, Senator, you're familiar with the old witch hunt attitude that when people get frightened at things and see bogeys, then they get out witch proclamations and mob action and all kinds of hysteria takes place. This is the first use of the term witch hunt in American politics to refer to an unfair and hysterical attack on a perceived enemy. The Overman Committee closed up shop in June after releasing a report that contained very little information about communist activity in the United States, since, in fact, the committee had found almost none, but a great deal about how the communist takeover would destroy American life and values. 
Everyone in the country would be left hungry and miserable. The prison doors would be opened and criminals flood the streets. The press would be shut down, the banks seized by the state, and American values threatened by atheists and free love advocates. The report made a particular point of noting that, quote, one of the most appalling and far-reaching consequences, unquote, of a Bolshevik revolution would be, quote, the confiscation and liquidation of life insurance companies. Well, we can't let that happen. At 2 a.m. the night of April 30th, a night clerk in the New York City Post Office, Mr. Charles Kaplan, completed his shift at the parcel division. He headed to Penn Station and boarded the subway north to his home in Harlem. He passed the time reading a copy of the New York Times, including a story about a tragedy the day before in Atlanta. A bomb had exploded in the home of a former U.S. senator. The senator's maid had been holding a recently delivered parcel when it exploded. The maid was horrifically injured, losing both of her hands. The article went on to describe the parcel. It was about seven inches long, three inches wide, two inches deep, wrapped in light brown paper, and listed as its return address Gimbel Brothers Department Store in New York. Curiously, an almost identical package, also containing a bomb, had been found in the Seattle post office, addressed to the mayor, Ole Hansen. Kaplan suddenly dropped the paper and jumped to his feet. As the train pulled into the 110th Street station, Kaplan bolted out and across the street, running down the stairs to catch the return train back to Penn Station. Kaplan had just remembered that three days before, he had lined up a dozen or so small packages wrapped in light brown paper and listing as a return address Gimbel Brothers Department Store. They had been pulled for insufficient postage. Kaplan's jolt of memory and the cheapness of the bombers had likely saved lives. The 16 packages had all contained bombs. An urgent call went out nationwide and 18 more packages were discovered. Their intended targets included Senator Lee Overman and Attorney General Mitchell Palmer, as well as numerous other politicians and prominent businessmen, including John D. Rockefeller and J.P. Morgan. One of the individuals on the list was a relatively low-level Bureau of Investigation field agent, once tasked with investigating the Galleonists. This, along with the overall method, pointed to the Italian anarchist group. But many Americans were not content with this explanation. It seemed that the bombs had to be part of a bigger picture, part of a pattern of assaults on Americans. This sense was reinforced a few days later, the 1st of May. May Day had long been a labor holiday, and this May 1st, parades were planned in several cities. Instead, riots broke out. In Boston, bands of vigilantes attacked a labor parade, then ransacked the headquarters of the Boston Socialist Party. In Cleveland, fights broke out between red haters and socialists, and veterans somehow got hold of a tank and drove it into the socialist parade. And in New York, veterans raided the Russian People's House on the Lower East Side. They gathered Russian-language books and magazines and set them on fire, then forced the immigrants found inside to sing the Star-Spangled Banner. This was not the first time this location had been targeted. In March, the New York City bomb squad had also raided the center. 
Let me tell you a little about the Russian People's House. It was a community center for Russian immigrants where they could read news from home, take English classes, and participate in social activities like the community orchestra. Nevertheless, the name of the center alone seemed to make the location irresistible to vigilantes and law enforcement. In the March raid, despite news reports describing those rounded up as, quote, representatives of the most radical type in this country, many arrested were, in fact, quite elderly. It was noted that several carried violin cases. Dangerous radicals, indeed. The People's House would be raided three more times over the course of the spring and summer. After the May Day riots, tension rose to a new pitch across the country, and few people were inclined to dispute the government's right to limit free speech. In fact, an editorial in the Salt Lake City Tribune pointed to free speech as one of the nation's problems. Free speech has been carried to the point where it is an unrestrained menace, the newspaper declared. As spring turned to summer, labor strikes continued, along with unrest we haven't yet discussed— racial violence. My next episode will be devoted to the horrific events of Red Summer. For now, what you need to know is that through the entire summer, riots broke out when bands of angry whites attacked African-American individuals, homes, and businesses. Violence swept the streets of Charleston, Washington, Chicago, Omaha, and half a dozen more communities. We will talk in detail about the causes of these riots, but in general, they arose out of widespread fear that African Americans were taking white jobs, moving into white neighborhoods, and showing inadequate deference to white um, sensibilities. It will not surprise you, however, to hear that the government told a different story. The government said, and the press reported, that the riots were prompted by Bolshevik agents and agitators. Here was yet another sign that the communists were spreading unrest and planning the overthrow of the established order. Now, to be fair, not everyone saw the situation in such alarming terms. Among the moderates was the new Attorney General of the United States, A. Mitchell Palmer, appointed by President Wilson in March 1919. When Palmer took office, he seemed to think that the country had gone a bit overboard in its fear of subversives. Palmer was born in 1872 to a Quaker family in Pennsylvania. He trained as an attorney and served as a Democratic representative in Congress from 1909 to 1915. He was an early backer of Woodrow Wilson, but was disappointed when Wilson offered him the job as Secretary of War. Palmer turned down the job, feeling it incompatible with his Quaker heritage and beliefs. Nevertheless, when the United States entered the war, Wilson appointed Palmer to the powerful position of alien property custodian. Germany owned almost a billion dollars in U.S.-based assets. It was Palmer's job to prevent them from damaging American interests. Palmer seized dozens of major German firms and took control of thousands of patents. He sold these assets to American companies at cut-rate prices, earning him the nickname in Berlin as the official American pickpocket. 
When the previous attorney general resigned in early spring 1919, Wilson was pleased to put Palmer in charge. Wilson had grown concerned that the Justice Department was going too far in its hunt for radicals. Remember the American Protective League, the group of Justice Department-backed individuals who dedicated themselves to spying on their neighbors? The APL had really gotten out of hand. Late in the war, they began staging what were called slacker raids to hunt out draft dodgers. In September 1918 in New York City, over the course of three days, APL agents had descended upon saloons, pool halls, bus stops, dance halls, and street corners, and detained any young man who could not immediately produce a draft card. They arrested more than 75,000 men, including children far too young to serve, and one 75-year-old man on crutches. Only a handful turned out to be actual draft dodgers. And anyway, do you really want vigilantes policing enlistment? As soon as he took office, Palmer disbanded the American Protective League. He also recommended that several individuals convicted under the Espionage Act be pardoned, and he released thousands of enemy aliens held in military internment camps. He even proposed clemency for Eugene Debs, although in this case he failed to convince Wilson. And then, the night of June 2nd, his house was bombed. There's no way that doesn't change you. If Palmer had followed his usual routine and had been sitting in his library reading at 11.15, he would have been killed. If his wife or daughter had been with him, they would have died as well. Meanwhile, the press was going crazy. The New York Tribune declared reds explode bombs in many cities. The Lake County Times in Hammond, Indiana, bellowed, Reds terrorize cities in most dastardly crime. The Kentuckian announced, Bolshevism in America starts reign of terror. Reign of terror was a favorite phrase of many headline writers, including those in Great Falls, Albuquerque, Ogden, and Tulsa. Editorial writers asked why such dangerous radicals had been allowed to operate in the United States in the first place and demanded their immediate arrest at a minimum. The Washington Post suggested the electric chair. The same questions were asked by government leaders, although in less accusatory tones. The very next morning, congressional representatives and senators visited Palmer's home, stood in the wreckage of his library, and told him to do whatever he had to do to stop these outrages. One said, Palmer, ask for what you want and you will get it. The government is behind you and whatever you do to root out this kind of revolutionary organization in this country. Palmer was transformed overnight into a dedicated red hunter, determined to use every tool at his disposal to stopping the Bolshevik menace. Curiously, Palmer didn't really care about finding out who had actually bombed his house. He told Congress a few days after the attack, quote, I am really quite as much interested in the prevention of those crimes, if not more so, than the punishment of the perpetrators after they have been committed. And so when federal agents struck in late June, raiding locations in a dozen cities and making 61 arrests, those targeted had no particular connection to the crime. They were known radicals, and that was enough. The raids established a pattern. The agents didn't bother with legal niceties such as warrants. 61 men were seized, 
locked up, and given no access to legal representation. Those found to be recent arrivals to the United States were turned over to the Immigration Bureau for deportation. Palmer decided his primary weapon would be the 1918 Immigration Act. This law allowed the government to deport any immigrants who were not citizens and who were known to be members of any organization that advocated the violent overthrow of the United States. This seemed like an excellent solution since Palmer, like most people, assumed the majority of anarchists and Bolsheviks weren't native-born Americans. As far as Palmer was concerned, the Immigration Act offered all kinds of advantages over the Espionage and Sedition Acts, which required trials. Trials took time, and they required the Justice Department to meet all kinds of tedious standards for due process and evidence. Who has time for that? According to Palmer's reading of the Immigration Act, radical aliens could be deported immediately. He decided the way to stomp out Bolshevism was to round up every radical he could get his hands on and send them packing. Palmer never bothered to consult his boss, Woodrow Wilson, about this plan. Anyway, Wilson wasn't home at the time of the bombing, but was still in France, wrapping up the Treaty of Versailles. When he got back, he was far too absorbed with the League of Nations fight to discuss policy with his attorney general. To execute his plan, Palmer began reorganizing and hiring staff. One of the most critical roles was to be intelligence. Palmer needed someone who could track anarchists, radicals, wobblies, and Bolsheviks. Someone who could provide details on where the bad guys could be found and when. Furthermore, what Palmer had in mind was going to be a logistical nightmare. He needed someone who could keep up with the details, coordinate agents in multiple cities, track warrants and arrests and deportations. And that's when someone threw out a name. How about that young guy, the one who worked so hard and seemed so dedicated? What about J. Edgar Hoover? John Edgar Hoover was born on New Year's Day, 1895, to a working-class family in Washington, D.C. After graduating from high school, he attended night school at George Washington University and worked during the day at the Library of Congress. The library job plays an unexpectedly large role in Hoover's future, since it was there he was introduced to, drumroll please, the card catalog. Okay, stay with me here. The library had recently introduced a new card catalog system that allowed it to track the millions of books, journals, manuscripts, and newspapers in its collection. Hoover marveled at how the system allowed him to find any book within minutes. Furthermore, because information was cross-referenced, he could follow trails through the system, book to author to publisher to more authors to more books. He instantly grasped the power of the system to organize vast quantities of data. In 1917, Hoover graduated with a degree in law. The war had broken out, but Hoover landed a draft-exempt position at the Justice Department. He quickly earned a reputation as a hard worker with an eye for detail. Palmer met Hoover soon after starting as attorney general and was impressed enough with the 24-year-old that he appointed him special assistant. 
And then on July 1st, Palmer created a new unit of the Bureau of Investigation called the Radical Division. It would be responsible for tracking subversives in the United States, although that would only be the start of Hoover's responsibilities. The young man soon became Palmer's right-hand man, his chief advisor and assistant, the man who made things happen, while Palmer consulted with Congress, spoke with the press, and gave speeches. Hoover jumped into action and directed his newly hired staff to create a card index system modeled on the one at the Library of Congress. This catalog would track every suspected radical in the United States. It would cross-reference the organizations they belonged to, the journals they read or wrote for, the people they associated with. As reports began to flood into Hoover's office from around the country, information was added to the cards at a dizzying rate. Within two months, the system contained 50,000 cards. Within a year, 100,000. Basically, Hoover had created a massive database. It was enormously powerful. If a name popped up, within minutes, Hoover could tell you everything the Bureau knew about them, down to their last known address, and who they liked to hang out with on a Saturday. Before computers, this was pretty amazing stuff. Palmer was delighted. With this information at his fingertips, he would soon have all of the Bolsheviks in the United States on the run. From Palmer's point of view, the danger just continued to rise. The Boston police strike began on September 9th, followed by the steelworkers strike. American socialists continued to offend Palmer by simply existing, despite the fact their leader, Debs, was languishing in prison. And now two Two new communist parties had been founded in the United States. The Wobbly leaders had been released from prison and were raising money for their appeal. Racial violence was everywhere. Palmer and Hoover could only see one possible hitch in their plan for the mass deportation of radical immigrants, the Department of Labor. The Department of Labor was then, for arcane bureaucratic reasons, the home of the Bureau of Immigration. The Justice Department could arrest radicals all day long, but actually deporting them was the business of the Immigration Bureau and therefore the Department of Labor. And the attorneys at the Department of Labor read U.S. immigration laws very differently than Palmer. According to the Department of Labor, for an individual to be deported, the Immigration Bureau needed a warrant that spelled out the evidence that the individual had committed a crime that warranted deportation. Palmer was furious when the Labor Department pressed this point. As far as Palmer was concerned, as Attorney General, he had the authority to determine who qualified for deportation, and the only thing left for the Immigration Bureau to do was put them on a boat. However, Hoover managed to find one person in the Labor Department who agreed with Palmer, and luckily he just happened to be the head of the Immigration Bureau. He agreed to process deportations quickly and avoid getting the higher-ups involved on the grounds that it is easier to beg forgiveness than ask permission. Anyway, the entire country was screaming at the government to do something, and they all figured the Labor Department wouldn't cause a stink when it came to deporting actual, living, presumably evil, Bolsheviks. On Friday, November 7th, the plan went into action. 
Bureau of Investigation agents struck in 15 cities simultaneously. The date, by the way, had been chosen to coincide with the anniversary of the Bolshevik takeover in Russia. At 9 p.m. in each city, agents and their police backups converged on pool halls, theaters, and boarding houses, seeking members of the Union of Russian Workers, an organization Hoover had deemed suitably radical. In New York, it will not surprise you to hear that the Russian People's House was yet again raided for the sixth time that year. Agent burst in on night courses in such terrifying subjects as algebra and auto repair and hauled students into police wagons. Those arrested later claimed they had been beaten, and photos in newsreels show many with bandages. More than 1,200 people were detained in New York alone. The total seized across the country isn't known, but it was in the several thousands. When all the detainees had been questioned and their identities determined, a process that took time and during which the suspected radicals had no recourse to legal support, only 249 were considered deportable. The president was, of course, completely unaware of any of this. He had suffered his stroke on October the 2nd and was completely incapacitated and incommunicado in November. It took six weeks for Hoover to arrange the deportations. The alleged radicals were transferred to Ellis Island, where, to Hoover's endless frustration, the Immigration Bureau insisted on holding deportation hearings for each and every one. The detainees united in efforts to disrupt and delay the proceedings. First, they went on a silent strike. But Hoover rounded up photos taken during the arrests, and hearings were held whether the individuals chose to speak or not. Then several went on hunger strike. Hoover shrugged and let them go hungry. After a few days, when the efforts seemed pointless, they gave it up. On the morning of December 21st, a transport ship Hoover had arranged to borrow from the War Department set out from Ellis Island with the 249 alleged radicals on board. It was nicknamed the Soviet Ark. The ship arrived in Finland on January 16th, and the detainees were transferred to Russia, where most of them disappeared into the chaos of revolution and civil war. Hoover was already deep into plans for the next raid. While Palmer took all the credit, and Hoover was careful not to steal the spotlight, the hard work was all Hoover's. He worked through most of the holidays fine-tuning plans, writing orders, and compiling lists of suspects. Everything had to go off without a hitch, because this would be the largest single-day police roundup in American history. On January 2, 1920, agents across the country made their move at 9 p.m. that night. They hit clubs, bars, foreign language newspaper offices, and night schools. In Nashua, New Hampshire, they barged into the St. Baptiste Hall, where the Lithuanian Club was having a New Year's dance. In Chicago, they halted dinner service at the Tolstoy Vegetarian Restaurant. In Philadelphia, they interrupted the rehearsal of the Lithuanian Socialist Chorus. I have not been able to determine in the research time that I had available if they raided the Russian people's house again. Perhaps they figured it had no more secrets to reveal, or perhaps they gave it a shakedown just for old time's sake. The exact number of people detained is unknown. It was certainly in the thousands. One scholar estimates it at 10,000. 
Certainly, it was more than the jails of American cities could comfortably hold. In Detroit, 800 men and women were shoved into the top floor of the city's old post office and housed in a single long corridor with no windows, no ventilation, no beds, a single water fountain, and a single bathroom. In Boston, thousands of detainees were jammed into a facility on Deer Island. The jail was unheated despite the freezing Massachusetts weather, and food supplies ran low. At Ellis Island in New York Harbor, conditions were so dismal that illness swept through the facility, and at least two men died. Attorneys began protesting the conditions under which the alleged radicals were held, as well as the arrests themselves. Most detainees had been arrested without warrants, and requests for bail were routinely refused. It took days, even weeks, for local police and the Justice Department to figure out exactly who they had in custody, if they were citizens or immigrants, and if they were members of radical organizations. But by the end of the month, deportation hearings had begun. Hoover was confident another Soviet arc would soon be sailing toward Finland. Palmer was the hero of the hour. Newspapers trumpeted his success at turning the tide on the Bolshevik menace. The attorney general seemed a sure bet for the Democratic presidential nomination that summer. And then came the backlash. In early April, the Justice Department was called to defend the January 2nd arrests and detentions at a habeas corpus case filed on behalf of those still in custody at Deer Island in Boston. Representing the detainees was an esteemed Harvard law professor named Felix Frankfurter. Under Frankfurter's questioning, Justice Department agents admitted to one illegal act after another— Warrantless arrests, warrantless searches, warrantless detentions. The supposed radicals weren't informed they were entitled to legal representation, and they were held in appalling conditions. Furthermore, Frankfurter got agents to admit that the Bureau of Investigation knew that the Communist Labor Party would be holding meetings the night of January 2nd because undercover informants employed by the Bureau had themselves organized these meetings. It seemed possible to those in the courtroom that the U.S. Justice Department, and not the Bolsheviks, was responsible for a significant amount of the communist activity in the country. The judge, one George Weston Anderson, issued his preliminary findings not long after and was scathing in his condemnation, quote, A more lawless proceeding is hard to conceive. This case seems to have been conducted under the modern theory of statesmanship, hang first and try afterward. This was bad enough, but then Louis Post became acting secretary of labor. Post was an attorney, journalist, and activist who had joined the Department of Labor in 1913. He was a muckraker and a progressive and friends with more than a few radicals himself. In March 1920, personnel changes in the department put him in charge of the Bureau of Investigation. That put Post in a position of power, and he began to exert it immediately. Post insisted on full legal safeguards for all detainees. He asked awkward questions about those in custody, like if they had actually done anything illegal, and if he wasn't satisfied with the answers, he released them. He began dropping deportation cases, first a few at a time, and then dozens at once. Hoover and the Justice Department weren't even informed. 
Palmer was furious, so furious he lashed out. In early April, the White House was under serious pressure for the president to show his face. The president's wife and doctor organized a cabinet meeting. Wilson was already seated in his chair when the cabinet was ushered in, and the entire meeting, Mrs. Wilson and Dr. Grayson hovered behind him. Palmer began a report about an ongoing railroad strike, which he claimed had been organized by Bolsheviks and Wobblies, and which the Justice Department intended to crush. The Labor Secretary, also named Wilson but no relation, protested that surely this was a matter for the Justice Department. Palmer snapped that the Labor Department was part of the problem, particularly Louis Post. He accused Post of undermining the government's crackdown on radicals and demanded Secretary Wilson fire Post immediately. This was just rude. Cabinet secretaries do not publicly attack the senior deputies of other cabinet secretaries. The labor secretary rushed to the defense of his subordinate, and soon the two men were shouting at one another. The president seemed unable to follow the increasingly heated argument and flinched at the loud voices. Mrs. Wilson interrupted, This is an experiment, you know. The men fell into an uncomfortable silence. But then the president seemed to be trying to speak. He looked at his attorney general and said, quote, Don't let the country see red. Then the meeting ended. No one had any idea what Wilson had meant. Was he telling Palmer not to overreact? Or was he indicating that he supported Palmer's actions? No one knows to this day. Palmer wanted Post gone, like now. But how? Intense discussions with Hoover and other aides produced a plan. Palmer would get Congress to do it. He would stage manage the impeachment of Louis Post. Palmer, Hoover, and their allies began calling up friendly congressmen and complaining about Post. By mid-April, the assault had reached the House floor. Ohio Representative Martin Davey gave a speech attacking Post, saying, quote, We have there in the Department of Labor a man whose sympathies evidently are with the enemies of our government. The hand of the Attorney General has been made impotent by the friend of the revolutionaries and that enemy of our government, Louis F. Post. Within a week or so, the House had made a formal accusation of abuse of power against Post. A hearing was scheduled for early May. In the meantime, Palmer had another setback. You'll recall that the previous May 1st had witnessed violent outbreaks around the country. Palmer was convinced that May Day 1920 would be infinitely worse. He predicted loudly and at length that communities needed to be prepared for riots, assassinations, and attacks unlike anything the United States had ever seen. Police authorities went on high alert across the country. Guards were placed around public buildings and the homes of prominent families. And Chicago went ahead and arrested 360 radicals just to be ahead of the game. But May Day came and went, and nothing happened. No riots, no assassinations, nothing. Palmer learns the press can turn on a dime as newspapers went from hailing him as a hero to mocking him for hysteria. The Boston American newspaper declared, quote, Everybody is laughing at A. Mitchell Palmer's May Day revolution. 
The joke is certainly on A. Mitchell Palmer, but the matter is not wholly a joke. The spectacle of a cabinet officer afraid of his own handmade bogey is a sorry one, even though it appeals to the humor of Americans. Yet, in spite of universal laughter, the people are seriously disgusted with these official red scares. So Palmer and his understudy Hoover were already in a bad mood when Louis Post went before the House Rules Committee on May 7th and 8th. Post testified alone for more than 10 hours. His testimony was electrifying and damning. Post systematically exposed Palmer's raids as grossly illegal, repeating many of the points that had so offended Judge Anderson in Boston. Then he looked at those who had actually been detained in the raids. Palmer had assumed that anyone with any affiliation with radical organizations threatened the United States. Post revealed that only about 50 out of the thousands detained on the night of January 2nd actually held radical opinions. 50 out of 10,000. Post handled questioning from representatives with grace and humor and through it all reiterated his belief that the protection of civil liberties outweighed the risk of radicalism. Take, for example, this exchange. A congressman asked Post, quote, You realized, of course, Mr. Secretary, that all of these rules that you have laid out operate to make it more difficult to deport the alien. Post replied, quote, Every rule in the interest of personal liberty makes it more difficult to take personal liberty away from a man who is entitled to his liberty, unquote. The Rules Committee took no further action against Louis Post. You had to be a Palmer true believer to continue to denounce him. The New York Evening Post stated, quote, The simple truth is that Louis F. Post deserves the gratitude of every American for his courageous and determined stand in behalf of our fundamental rights, unquote. It was not looking good for Palmer or anyone associated with him. And then yet another threat materialized. An organization called the National Popular Government League assembled a group of attorneys to investigate Palmer's Justice Department. They intended to produce a report that would lay out the evidence of wrongdoing by the Justice Department. Hoover's first reaction was to start investigating everyone associated with the group. It seems not to have occurred to Hoover or Palmer or anyone else in the Justice Department that there was anything inappropriate about using government resources to dig up dirt on Palmer's political opponents. Hoover, however, did make a point of filing all reports about the National Popular Government League in such a way that anyone just glancing at the index wouldn't know these individuals had been investigated. But the respected attorneys of the League were annoyingly clean. Take, for example, Felix Frankfurter, who had done so much harm in the habeas corpus case in Boston. Agents found evidence of a speech Frankfurter had given on Armistice Day that some listeners considered suspicious. Someone in the American Protective League had found him questionable. But that was it. It was maddening. Clearly, the man was a Bolshevik sympathizer, or he wouldn't be fighting so hard against Palmer but he had been careful. If anything, this made Hoover even more suspicious. 
The report of the National Popular Government League was released on May 28th, and it was a bombshell. It laid out all of the claims made in the habeas corpus trial and by Louis Post and more. The timing was either brilliant or awful, depending on your perspective. On June 1st, Palmer had been asked to testify before the House Rules Committee to respond to the charges made by Louis Post. One day before the anniversary of the bombing of his house, all of his actions since were in effect put on trial. Hoover had done all he could to help. He prepared a 209-page report that refuted or at least attempted to refute, all of the abuses alleged by Post and the National Popular Government League. What Palmer did over the next few days was, in effect, tell the committee a story. It was a story about a grand, coordinated conspiracy by the Bolsheviks, organized from Russia and determined to overthrow the United States government. Palmer wove together everything that had happened in the previous few years— the strikes, the bombs, the race riots, everyone had a role. The anarchists, the wobblies, the socialists, the Bolsheviks, even the attorneys in the National Popular Government League. To deny this conspiracy was to be a naive dupe of communist propagandists and agitators. Well, Palmer was no dupe. He was brave and honest, a patriot, nearly a martyr. And what had he got for it? Palmer said, quote, I think the public is entitled to know what is going on in this country. I have tried to tell them. I have told them the truth. I have received for it vilification, abuse, and ridicule. But I propose to continue. It wasn't enough. The tide had turned. Palmer attended the Democratic Convention in San Francisco in late June, still hoping he could win the presidential nomination, but he now seemed to be shouting about a threat that had passed, or worse, had not existed at all. James M. Cox, governor of Ohio, won the nomination with the charming and dynamic Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Palmer's neighbor, whose home had also been severely damaged in the bomb attack, his running mate. Also in the contest for president was Socialist Party candidate Eugene V. Debs, who conducted his campaign from his prison cell. Despite everything, he still won 3.4% of the popular vote. But the winner of the November election was Warren G. Harding and his running mate Calvin Coolidge. Coolidge, you'll recall, was best known for taking a tough stance against the Boston police strike. Harding's platform had emphasized free speech and took several swipes at Palmer and his raids. Harding told supporters, too much has been said about Bolshevism in America. And that was that. Except, of course, it's never that easy. Hoover, still only 25, remained the head of the Radical Division, which he quietly renamed the more innocuous General Intelligence Division. He knew, and Palmer knew, how important had been his role in the raids. Hoover had designed and executed the entire operation while Palmer went out and gave speeches. But when a new administration took over, it seemed impossible that this polite, hardworking young man could have been in charge of anything, let alone the largest police raid in history. Palmer wasn't going to give anyone else credit for what he considered his handiwork, and Hoover always knew when it was best to keep his mouth shut. His career in the Justice Department continued without a blip. 
and he still had his index cards. The system doubled from 100,000 to 200,000 cards by late 1920 and reached 450,000 by late 1921. Hoover continued to update cards on anyone he personally considered suspicious, among them Felix Frankfurter, who was appointed to the Supreme Court in 1939. Hoover's career would be built on the investigation of subversives and radicals, and he would never stop gathering data on anyone and everyone he perceived was or could become a threat. It would keep him in power until his death in 1972. Palmer, meanwhile, served as attorney general until Harding took office. He spent most of his last months preparing the Justice Department for prohibition. But he was dragged up to the Senate in the spring of 1921, just two weeks before the inauguration, for one last round of questioning about the Red Raids. The same charges were brought, but Palmer no longer bothered to deny them in detail. Instead, he tried to remind the senators what it had been like only 18 months before when it had seen Bolsheviks were everywhere, back when all the windows of Palmer's house were blown out and the bloody remains of an anarchist were scattered up and down his street. He said, and this is a long quote, but I think it's worthwhile. How soon do we forget? At that time, in 1919, I was shouted at from every editorial sanctum in America from sea to sea. I was preached upon from every pulpit. I was urged, I could feel it dinned into my ears throughout the country to do something and do it now and do it quick and do it in a way that would bring results to stop this sort of thing in the United States. I accept responsibility for carrying out that policy. I apologize for nothing the Department of Justice has done in this matter. I glory in it. And if, as I said, some of my agents out in the field were a little rough or unkind or short and curt with these alien agitators whom they observed seeking to destroy their homes, their religion, and the country... I think it might well be overlooked in the general good to the country which has come from it. That is all I have to say. How is it that everyone believes one thing and then one day they all wake up and believe something else? Obviously, it's never everyone and it's never that sudden, but public opinion can shift fast. Historians can point to turning points, this trial, that bit of testimony, that headline. But the process seems more subtle and mysterious than that. I don't think I can truly explain why, in the summer of 1919, the majority of Americans were terrified of Bolsheviks, nor why, by the summer of 1920, they weren't. It helped, of course, that the threat was non-existent. There was no conspiracy, and the Bolsheviks were a tiny group of people who would have a hard time overthrowing a picnic. But we've gone on believing false things for far longer than 12 months, and will presumably do so again. I can only tell you one more story. On September 16, 1920, at 12.01 p.m. on a Thursday, A massive bomb exploded on Wall Street in the center of the New York Financial District. 29 people were killed instantly. 
Another eight died later of their wounds. Hundreds were injured. It seems that a horse-drawn wagon had been loaded with dynamite and parked on the street. The driver of the wagon had set a timer and walked away. The bombing was horrifying, but no one panicked. If the goal had been to disrupt the nation's economic activity, it was a dismal failure. The Bureau of Investigation and the New York City Police looked at all of the usual suspects, the communists, the Wobblies, the Union of Russian Workers, and so on. They might well have raided the Russian people's house just for the heck of it, but I don't know that. The only real clue was a flyer found in a Wall Street post office box that read, quote, free the political prisoners or it will be sure death for all of you. It was signed American Anarchist Fighters. The quiet conclusion of law enforcement experts was that the perpetrators were, again, the Galeonists. They were still out there, still taking lives and not a step closer to punishment. Thank you so much for listening to The Year That Was. Check out the website for photos and links to sources. I've included links to newspapers that I think you'll find really fascinating. Visit me on Facebook or on Twitter, and I hope you've subscribed so you never miss an episode. Thanks in particular go this week to Michelle E., who left a review on the Facebook page. Michelle said, quote, the deep dive to explore one year and the surrounding events is an excellent way to learn. I totally agree, Michelle. Thank you so much for leaving the review. It's fantastic. Now, it is coming up to the holidays, and y'all, I need a break. So I'm taking one. I originally planned, and I told you this last time, on taking two weeks off. But then I looked at the calendar, and I've got a huge volunteer event the first weekend of January. So I am going to give myself three weeks and then return rested and enthusiastic and not inclined to burst into tears. Anyone, someone says 1919. Look for a new episode on January 14th. And thank you all for your patience. Thanks again for listening. I'm Elizabeth Lunday, and this is the year that was.